You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Cool Collaborations Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Judy Stewart, who is a retired lawyer and an environmentally minded collaborator here in Alberta. In today's conversation, we speak about the need to bring people together to solve complex or wicked problems and some of the skills that are used in collaboration to translate from one perspective to another. Judy also gives us a snippet of her research into reflexive law and bridging organizations. Throughout the episode, you'll hear Judy use terms and acronyms such as the BRBC, which is the Bow River Basin Council, the AWC, Alberta Water Council, and the CRAZ, or CRAS, for the Calgary Regional Airshed Zone. These are all organizations that Judy has supported in a collaborative fashion. I'm sure you'll enjoy our conversation. Hello. Hello. I hope you're doing well. I am, and I hope you are as well. So... Let's, let's just start off by having you introduce yourself. How do you introduce yourself to people who are, are maybe new to you or just getting to know you? I guess the first thing I would tell people is that I am a retired lawyer. I just retired in June. I was practicing up until that point. My practice was primarily in water and municipal law, although I've been told I write a mean will and uh, gave people a lot of advice on contracts and that sort of thing. I haven't gone to court since 2001, and very proud of that, left the court system. But what most people know me for is not for being a lawyer. They know me for being uh, very political, and also for my volunteer work. I'm very political at the municipal scale. I've done some council work, and also served as mayor here in Cochrane, Alberta. And that's all in the past. Over the past, uh, I would say, since 1992, actually, I've been working with water and water groups, primarily the Bow River Basin Council, also the Alberta Water Council. And uh, for the past eight years, I've been involved with the Calgary Region Airshed Zone as well. Uh, So I've been a very active volunteer in the governance world, environmental governance, as well as... uh, dabbled a bit in politics. I started out as a teacher, and uh, then I went into law, became a lawyer. I did a master's of law back in 2008, and my thesis was about uh, all the different tools to municipalities could use to manage water resources, such things as wetlands and riparian lands, which are common water resources. And then I went back to school and graduated in 2016 from the Faculty of Environmental Design. So I now have a doctorate in environmental design, but my doctorate was about reflexive legal systems to support bridging organizations. And I believe we're going to talk a little bit about that. So it's a long-winded introduction, but hey, I'm close to 70, so I've had a long life. So how long did you practice? I practiced from uh, 1994 until uh, 2020. So that's quite a while. 
it wasn't, it was 23 years in total of active practice. And uh, it wasn't a sufficient for me to be a retired member of the Law Society, but uh, I'm a not active member. So you have to practice for 25 years before you become a distinguished and honorary member of the Law Society of Alberta. But long enough. So you, you came close. I came really close, but I wasn't going to hang in for two more years just to, to retire with distinction. So it seems like you've, You've come to sort of a collaborative space from kind of an interesting background because it seems like teaching would be quite a quite a collaborative effort amongst teachers to try and figure out what you're going to teach. And then you went to law, which typically isn't super collaborative. They're always, you know, you know, defending a position or or looking at a position. Would you agree with that? Or is it like what was your sense of the collaborative environment inside the law space? I don't really talk about collaboration in the law space because you're absolutely right. Um, as a teacher, we were uh, when we when I was teaching, um, basically you didn't do a lot of administration. You basically just went into the classroom and taught the children, which was lovely. Um, and I think a lot of teachers now wish they could go back to that to that where they didn't do a lot of administration. I worked mostly with handicapped children. They were significantly handicapped and certain age group. And where the collaboration came in was not so much with other faculty, other teachers. It was with all the different specialists, the speech therapists and, and the experts who would come and work one-on-one -on -one with the children. So there was a lot of collaboration there. But uh, basically, I was the teacher. I was in charge. And I like to be bossy. <laughs> so, uh, so I didn't really take advantage of collaboration at that level. Uh, when I went into law, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world there, and it's very competitive. It, it didn't really suit me all that well, but I picked up pretty quickly how to take advantage of uh, certain skills that I have to win, because it's all about winning, right? Winning for your client, winning, being the best. And uh, so I would like to tell everybody who's listening to me that I am a recovering lawyer <laughs> because I recover some of my sense of, um, of dignity and, and personal best since I have uh, given up uh, the practice of law. I basically gave that up around 2001 and just decided to do things that I thought were helpful, like help municipalities, help nonprofit groups help people uh, prepare for for well for death with their wills and personal directives so I, I i stopped i stopped that behavior because it was very detrimental to myself and my family actually politics is also not uh, very collaborative as i'm sure you're witnessing um so when i was in that political arena it was also very competitive and rather than collaborate back in those days anyway it was that dog eat dog world and lawyers are are really well positioned to play in that field so you know i, I none of my professional work was ever that collaborative because you've got that kind of a breadth of experience you know from the professional where it's as you put it dog eat dog and personal that has been more collaborative or more joint service that kind of thing have you come to think about collaboration in a particular way and, and sort of what is it about collaboration or that 
co-development or co-design type of work. What is it that interests you or or captures your attention? Well, I I guess um, everything about it interests me because it's about human networks and, and the interactions between people. And it's essential when you're talking about environmental governance because all the problems that I have been tackling with others uh, in this water world and, and the air quality management world are all these wicked problems that nobody can solve on their own. Um, these They're all unique. For example, right now, uh, the human race is facing this pandemic and a pandemic at this scale has never happened in human history. And so we don't have any blueprint. We don't have any protocols to address it at this scale. So we need to work together. And this is exactly what's happening with all these emergent environmental issues as a result of climate change and, and rapid population growth and, and scarcity. We need to work together. So all of these problems are very, very similar to the pandemic because humans, people like you and me, Scott, we have to change our behavior really rapidly in response to some of these crises, or we, we change them very slowly, step by step over time, which is how the legal system works. But we do need that catalyst. There's always something that's, um, I call it throwing a rock into the anthill that gets people prompted to take some kind of action. But the problem in collaboration is we're all really different. Like you and I, we have completely different cultures and values, ways of going about things. And so it's very complex when you start talking about human collaboration. And and if you put industrial representatives into the mix with environmental people like me, they deal with rapidly changing realities every day, whether it's, you know, the resource they're working with or it's the technology that they're trying to test. And all of us are dealing with everything using our own distinctive language. So our technical terms, lawyers and engineers, municipal planners, everybody has their own language. So we say the same words, but they mean different things to each one of us in different contexts. So we're, we're all in this collaborative process trying to bring something to the table. And it's not very easy. I say... That the thing about collaboration that interests me the most is that we all go there trying to solve these wicked problems because we have a self-interest. And what we need most in collaboration, what I'm most interested in, is this idea of trust building and being able to acknowledge all the others who are also coming to the table with their own uh, backgrounds and history and our willingness and ability to share what we have, we throw everything at these problems. So I guess it interests me because it's, it's like a stab in the dark. When you enter into the process, you don't really know where it's going to end up. Right. And, and everything's on the table all at the same time. So how do you measure success in something like that? You know, you've touched on so many aspects that I, we could probably spend hours digging into. The different pieces, but the ones that jump out at me are the idea of of language and having a common language. And I, I'm assuming that when you think about collaboration, that's really a forum where people actually come to a common language by spending some time together and talking through things. So they 
they kind of discover a, a language unto themselves in a in a collaborative space. Would that be a fair way of putting it? Yes, and and you see, that's where I was sort of going with that whole ladder. There was it's with the need for the strong leadership. You need to have the strong leadership in these protests who is who are willing to to work with that language to say what do you mean. What do you mean by that? Explain it to the group. And to me, the most wonderful uh, learning is when you find somebody who is really annoyed by the process and they're, they keep saying the same thing over and over again. And then the leadership or somebody in the group says, let me help you. What you're saying is this. And they explain it to the group. They take somebody's language and they bring it down or bring it up to a level where everyone uh, is able to understand what that person's trying to contribute. So to me, all collaboration is learning. It's not taking, it's giving. It has nothing to do with taking. It has to do with learning. It has to do with with, um, with sharing what you have. And it ha- it's a process. And you don't really know. You know, I, I, what I do is the old Rolling Stone concept. When you go into a collaborative process, you have a self-interest and you're aware of your self-interest. Everyone who's there is your equal. Everyone has a right to be heard. But the problem is the same for everyone. And so with the leadership able to to take all of that and and work with you and make sure you all stay on task, that's, that's where something happens. And I say it's the old Rolling Stones adage. You don't always get what you want, but you get what you need out of a collaboration. Right. Would you say that that leadership concept sort of starts in in one place and then broadens to the group? Yes, that's exactly correct. Um, what I what I like most about the human interactions in these collaborative processes is that we don't know who we're going to be collaborating with. Right. We walk into them. Sometimes we might know one or two people or we've met them somewhere else, but we're walking in blind. And and how we start to interact in collaboration, we create these wonderful organizational structures. And the best collaborations that I participate in, and you know I've been at this since 1992, are where you have this strong core group in the middle. And they might have certain motivations or they want certain things to come out of the process. But the rest of us don't necessarily know that. We're connected to the core. And through the process, we create the structure that allows us to solve the problem. And so I like to see myself as one of the people who was always a little bit of an outlier because I didn't really know anybody who wants a lawyer, right? I mean, nobody really wanted to embarrass there. But (laughs) by having me there, our group's were strengthened because I was able to bring that extra little bit of detail in to help everybody else. And and I always found that the best collaborations were the ones where we had that strong, well-educated core of people who liked each other, who trusted each other, and who were willing to listen and and help the people on the periphery of the the group to, to be heard by others. So I think that that is the key, is that cohesive group who trust each other and know each other. They've developed relationships in the past, and they have this wonderful sense of humor. 
you know, so I, I really appreciate them. But I also really appreciate all those people on the periphery, the outliers who, who might not always want to be there all the time. They don't necessarily agree with everybody, but they bring those elements of surprise and innovation. And they're the ones that you can send off and say, go do this, come back in a week <laughs> and make sure that is uh, informed and and they'll do that. They're the ones who who will who will leave the process to go and do something on their own and then come back and 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 add something to it that makes it even more um, meaningful. Right. So you've talked about a lot of the elements of a of a strong collaboration or a successful collaboration. Do you have an example or maybe a couple examples even that that kind of illustrate this that you've been involved in, in in the past like what what's an example that jumps out in your mind as one of the more successful or the most successful collaborative efforts you've been a part of in PRBC, this is my one of my favorite times uh, we were working on preparing a submission when they were introducing the new water act and so at that time i was very naive and as i say i was a lawyer and very aggressive. And I was put on this little subcommittee to write this submission on what would the Bow River Basin Council want to see reflected in the new Water Act. And at that time, I really didn't like the irrigation district, mostly because I didn't know any of the people. I certainly didn't trust what they were doing, and I thought irrigation should be banned. That's how naive I was. And so the fellow who was working with me on this subcommittee, uh, Jim Weber from the irrigation district, decided that I needed to be taught some things and I needed uh, to trust the irrigation people. So he told me, you're going to be in charge of writing the submission. I want you to write everything down. And if you ever have an opportunity where you're questioning or you, you don't understand something, just let us know. And most, and we'll, we'll make sure you understand it before we go any further. So I knew the law, I knew the whole purpose of changing the Water Resources Act to the new Water Act. I knew what was happening, but I really thought, why are the irrigation districts pushing so hard for this? So he actually took me on a field trip out to the furthest reaches of irrigated landscape and showed me the difference between an irrigated acre and a non-irrigated acre. And he said, this is how all of this landscape looks before irrigation districts and the irrigation was allowed under the Water Resources Act. Um, and most of my opinions were really, really unfair in retrospect. But at the time, I was like so many Albertans, I just didn't know. I didn't have any basis for understanding. I had no um, ability to form a trusting relationship because I had no history, no background. So after a time, because of, of the work we did on that committee, not only was our submission supported by every single sector on BRBC and then reflected back in the Water Act, which was tremendous, but I became a spokesperson for irrigation districts. They trusted me enough to know that when I stood up to speak on behalf of irrigation districts, I would do them justice. And the same for me, they came to see um, the nuances of the law and why lawyers were questioning some of the motivation behind changing the Water Resources Act. So and that was an amazing collaboration. You know, I'm, I'm struck by a couple of your examples there because 
you talked about the uncertainty of success, but of, of what the end product is. And I often encounter resistance to collaboration because you can't forecast what the end is going to look like. Have you encountered that as well? And, and how do you kind of address that with, with people who are you know, maybe on the fence about whether or not they should collaborate? And they're, they're on the fence simply because they, they want a, you know, a set timeline or a set product. They can kind of have a solution in mind already, maybe. Do you encounter that? And, and how do you address it? There's an old adage out there, and I know a lot of them, but this one is that you have two ears and one mouth to listen more and talk less. And even today, I could be doing this better. I can, I'm not going to say I, I become wise. I, I'm going to say that I, I know in theory what I should be doing, but I don't always practice it myself. So when you're asked to join these collaborative teams to solve some of these persistent problems that nobody's been able to solve on their own, I would say that we need to, uh, first of all, look at why are we there? So if I'm being invited to sit on a, a Water for Life review committee, why am I interested and why am I going? What, what is it I'm going to want from that process? And as soon as I, I examine it and understand it, then I would tell somebody, if you examine your self-interest and you, you know what it is, put it to the side, park it, because that down the road, you're going to find your self-interest is going to be satisfied. You're going to get way more than you put in. So just park it. The last thing that you want to do is bring it to the light of day. You don't have to talk about it. Just keep it out of earshot. Nobody cares. Everyone has their reasons for being there. Everyone has their self-interest. So keep it to yourself. Just be there and, and be willing to listen. So I would say first listen. Listen really well to what everybody around the table has to say. And the second thing is keep your mind as open as you can. I know, you know, these coaches always tell you, well, try and practice an open mind. And they say it with such glibness that I want to go over and just tap them on the side of the head and say, you're asking some of these people who've come here to do something that's the most difficult of all, to be open-minded. It's not easy. Third, and this is even harder, try to be pleasant. Now, to some of you guys who've been working for government for years, being pleasant comes naturally, or they would have let you go years ago. But for others of us, being pleasant doesn't come naturally. It's not, it isn't, you know, something that we're taught to do. We're, we're taught to be competitive and aggressive and hold people to task. So being pleasant, try to do that. Try to just recognize that everyone at the table is your equal. You're all there. You all deserve to be heard. You all have something important. And that sometimes other people need you at the table to have listened to them, to translate what you just said to the whole group so that everyone can understand you. And, and that's when I think, you know, you've really got a talent is when you can take some whiny, whiny, persistent language and everyone wants it to go away and you can translate it to the whole group so that everyone goes, oh, I see. And it's those, oh, I see moments that I love the most when I'm doing a collaboration. And lastly, I would say that if anybody, well, not lastly, but almost, if somebody pushes you at that table and says, well, why are you here? Why do you keep raising that? 
I think you have to be strong enough of character to challenge, to, to get right back in their face and not put up with bullshit. Because there's a lot of bullshitting that goes along, goes in, in some of these collaborative processes. So you have to be strong enough to do it in a friendly way, but to still say back, like, no, we've heard that so many times. That's just not going to cut the mustard. And if someone tries to challenge why you're there, you know, you have to be able to articulate and, and be firm with, I'm here for the same reason you're here. Here is a problem that we're trying to solve together because we can't keep trying to solve it on our own. We'll fail time and time again and bring everyone back to what are we here trying to accomplish. So I would say, you know, collaboration is not for bullies, but it's certainly not a place for weak-willed or wimpy people either. You know, you have to be able to speak up for the interest that you're bringing to the table. You know, there's two pieces that, that really resonate with me in, in that. Well, all of it resonates with me, but two really sort of stand out uh, for me. And one was the idea that people should identify their self-interest and then set it aside. So this notion that they first need to understand why they're there. And sometimes um, I, I suspect people attend or come to these collaborative events or issues with a an agenda, but they don't. They haven't actually identified the root of why they're there, and then setting it aside so that they can they can listen and not be married to that self interest. So it actually allows them to change, and perhaps their self interest will evolve. I really I really appreciate that. But even more than that is the notion that you mentioned of bringing people, sort of taking people off of their soapbox in a way from having a person-to-person conflict to having a person-to-problem conflict. So it's, it's us against the problem, not us against each other. I've mentioned that in the past with others and, and continue to you know, teach people that as well. And, but it's a tough thing for people to take themselves out of the equation or, or take others out of the equation or see others as a potential resource. That, that's the hardest thing. And I think it comes from not trusting yeah, there are lots of times when the environmental sector, we don't basically, we're told we don't have any self-interest. Well, we must have a self-interest, and I'm not going to bore you with what mine is, because it's quite different than every other so-called environmentalist on Alberta Water Council. But they tell us, you don't have a self-interest, so why are you even here? What we are there to do is try and represent the natural systems, try and teach people how important these systems are, and without without them, we there would be no need for any of this. So I think we don't always agree. And some of the best arguments I have had on project teams for the Water Council have been with other environmentalists who are trying to be litigious or trying to uh, speak to the letter of the law instead of the intent of the law. Or they're trying to take the, the debate away from, well, debate, actually. They're trying to debate something rather than to put all of their energy into solving the problem. So one of the things we talked about when we were kind of preparing for this, this conversation was some of your more recent work, and you even touched on it at the beginning of our, our discussion today around the work you did for your, your PhD and building bridging organizations. So I was wondering... Can you tell me a little bit more about what that is and, and how they work and 
some of the details around a, a bridging organization and, and your research in general. So I ended up studying bridging organizations and I stu- and, and reflexive law, which is an emergent stage of law's evolution, whereby the law reflects back its responding to society. Instead of the law being out there as um, just substantive rules and regulations, it's a set of guidance tools to, to frame what society is saying and reflect it back so that people are always working within the law. The bridging organization theory and conceptualization started way back in the 50s, and it started in relation to social issues. It was in the social sciences where these research originally took place. And what those researchers were looking at was the emergence of all these organizations who were working with the Western world, who had food, drugs, medicine, resources, money, and the people in the developing world who had none. These organizations like Oxfam and other organizations, these world organizations, just emerged to try and bridge the gap to bring the people who needed all these resources together with people who had them and to try and help address some of these scarcity and poverty issues. So that's where it came from. And it wasn't until the late 1990s and early 2000s that some European researchers uh, working in the environmental field, especially water resources and fisheries and things like that, started to see that the bridging, the bridging functions, bringing together, like neutralizing the disparity, creating these bridges between people were, uh, were essential in environmental governance as well. This is all the theory behind it. What I discovered in the Calgary region is that we had BRBC, we had CRAS. At the time, we had the Calgary Regional Partnership. We also had a lot of for-profit organizations that were doing the same thing. They were coming together, forming a society to try and bridge different gaps, whether it was a knowledge gap, technology gap, a regulatory gap. For example, I just want you to, on bridging organizations, to understand that they are quite different than the groups they try and bring together, that they try and build these bridges for. BRBC is quite different from any of the sectors or any of the government representatives that it brings together. It has its own funding generally. Sometimes it gets funded by different people, different members, has its own uh, ways of doing business, its own governance structure. It isn't ruled by any one of those sectors. They're quite different than the groups they bring together. As I reflect a little bit on what your research was talking about and the bridging organization model, it strikes me that it's similar in, in a way to a point you, you mentioned a little while ago about strong leadership and that that leadership is taking a slightly different role in a collaborative group to be essentially a bridge between the people. Uh, you called it a translator between uh, different languages. It seems like the bridging organization is just that same kind of concept, the leadership concept, but taken to another level, taken to an organizational level. And maybe with more, there's more around it, but the concept seems similar between the two. Is that, would you agree? Yes, I think, I think, I think you're right. I think that every single project team has that bridging role. 
Um, sometimes it's our it's our fearless leaders from Alberta Water Company who keep us on track. And sometimes it's the chairpersons, and sometimes it's just one of the people in the group who who take on the role of translating out and bridging between. And I, I every time I see that happen, I just sit back and I feel so happy when I see you know it. It's an amazing accomplishment. It's an amazing human trait and talent to be able to do that. And not all of us are so gifted. So I'd like to promote it as much as I can. So Judy, we try and I try and wrap up with some uh, rapid fire kinds of questions. So if you're ready, I'll, I'll kick off with a couple of those. Sure. Okay. So do you have a favorite collaboration quote or a, a reference you go to? I guess it's sort of an adage. I'm not sure who said it first or where it comes from, but I read somewhere that you have two ears and one mouth to listen more and speak less. That would be what I would quote as uh, what collaboration is all about. Oh, very nice. I I completely agree. and, And we so often miss that idea that we should be listening more than we're speaking. So thank you for that. My next rapid fire question is, do you have a go-to book or maybe a book or a reference type material that you routinely would give to somebody or would suggest that somebody reads? The most important book that I refer to time and time again was written by Petra Rowell, uh, who works with the Alberta Water Council. She wrote the little um, add-on to Water for Life called Enabling Partnerships. And that is an amazing piece of work that more of us should be told is required reading if we want to collaborate with the council or with one another. It's, it's quite amazing how she put that together about how, you know, what we would do as partners, what our role is as partners and, and to reflect upon when we sit around those project team tables, how this is, uh, uh, a critical perspective to think of ourselves as partners. You know, I'm familiar with that piece of work and I'm, I, I would completely agree with you and we'll make sure that uh, we put a reference to that document in the show notes so that people who are interested can go and find it. Absolutely. My, my last question of the day would be, is there a leader or some other figure that you admire for their collaborative mentality for their maybe their collaborative approach well there's a couple Uh, i would say the most significant one in my history has been uh, jim weber who used to work for alberta uh, Alberta irrigation districts and also for the eastern irrigation district i found him absolutely critical in my learning about collaboration and the second one is jay white basically that guy will collaborate with anyone (laughs) As famous people go, or people who I've met in my professional career, the only person is Gilles Paquette, who has written extensively out of the University of Ottawa uh, about governance and the need for all of us, any, no matter what you do for a profession, to collaborate to you know achieve some kind of a success and moving forward. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for the, the conversation today, and, and I appreciate uh, all of your contributions to the, the collaborative world. I know they've taken a lot of different forms, so thanks again for your time and for the conversation today.
It's always so much fun to talk with Judy. From our conversation today, I took away this idea that translators in a group are a critical piece of the puzzle of collaboration. Somebody who can translate from one person's understanding to another when that understanding isn't really clear or apparent. I also liked how the thinking broadened throughout our conversation from that notion of a translator to one of a bridging organization where the function provided was much broader than a simple translation of concept or a translation of information. There's a lot to think about from our conversation today. Thanks, Judy, for sharing your perspectives and thank you for listening. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.